Hello and welcome to episode 6 of People 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 like games What's up, what's up, and welcome back to another episode of People Like Games. I'm your host, Solo, and this happens to be a show about video games, esports, and gaming industry news. We are relatively new to the scene. However, we have a few good episodes under our belt thus far. You can find that catalog over on the iTunes store or Google Play. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe. And if you don't, don't. We also happen to Twitter, if that's your thing. The handle is at people like games. Say hello. Uh, if you have any questions about the show, comments, questions, bitter recriminations, I'm game to chat. I am quite the banterer. Anyway, we got a pretty great show for you this week, actually. As usual, we'll be covering the week's news. And then for our in-depth, I'll be taking a look at video game rental services, picking up on a thread from last week, namely the gaming industry's trend of moving towards digital downloads and the effect that sort of had on secondary markets and video game rental services. So I thought, why not sort of put together a list of what available services were out there? And it was as decrepit as I had presumed it was going to be, probably a little worse, but we'll get to that in the next segment. Uh, and then to wrap up the show, I had the chance to have a wonderful conversation, actually, with Jamie Broadnex, who is the founder of the website and online community Black Girl Nerds. The conversation did stray a little bit away from video games. However, it was the day that the we did speak the day that the Golden Globe nominations were announced. And there was a few egregious mistakes there that had to be discussed. And in my opinion, pop culture conversations are allowed to happen anywhere, even on a game show that is not related to game. But anyway, without much further ado, I'm going to jump into the show here. Let's start with the Game Awards, actually. Uh, aired last week, December 7th, if you recall. And the viewership numbers actually just came out. It had 11.5 million live streams. That's a number that's triple the number of viewers it had last year, which doesn't surprise me. It's going to probably see triple the number of viewers next year as well. Jeff is doing a really great job with the award show, and I think it's if not on its way to becoming the quote unquote Oscars of gaming, it is at least well on the pathway towards becoming a, an established yearly event within the industry. The interactive elements that they added this year really were very compelling stuff. Uh, and that was actually noted in the numbers. Last year, the average viewer watched for 20 minutes. And for this year, they watched for 70 minutes because a lot of these deals were occurring at random segment times, etc. cetera. Uh, it was way more interactive. If you recall, I mentioned the, the Twitch voting overlay that they had as well. It was on a number of streaming platforms. So it's only going to get bigger. It's still early on. I think it's third or fourth year. So Jeff, wonderful job. Maybe I'll even be at the show next year. Who knows? We'll see how uh, the listeners respond to the show. But apparently, according to some people, I have yet to uh, 
discern, not discern. I've yet to share too much of my personality. And, and that's something that's a drawback. I've been told that I need to be more relatable. So every week I'll be dropping tidbits about myself. This week, I guess I'll say Bioshock is my favorite gaming series. And don't at me about that one, son. Regardless, let's uh, now get a little bit more into the actual show. Overwatch, obviously. Uh, the OWL preseason launched last week, and even though I was a little skeptical going in, the final product was actually pretty wonderful. The stage that they were able to set up was unique. The you know upgraded or the updated spectator system that came out a few weeks back at BlizzCon could still use a few improvements, uh, particularly allowing you to view the players that you want to watch rather than being sort of stuck with the default player that the casters are following. But it was really good, especially for a preseason. And I have decided to arbitrarily support the London Spitfire, if only because they have the best logo and branding of the team so far. So London Spitfire, let's do it this year. Uh, the Winter Wonderland, the winter-themed uh, event for Overwatch, also came out yesterday. There's a special May game mode, and it also came out with a few new skins for, I think, five, six characters. Anna, 76, Hanzo, Roadhog, Bastion, and Sombra. So I am looking forward to playing that tonight. I was doing a little bit of research for the show, so I was not able to get on yesterday. But we shall play today. And then... For final Overwatch news, at the Fun and Serious Game Festival in Bilbao in Brazil, Jeff Kaplan hinted that the 27th hero for Overwatch has already been teased in one of these shorts. So I'm looking forward to the internet going into sleuth mode and finding out who uh, is who the character potentially is going to be. Uh, but now, next up, Fortnite. Fortnite recently passed 30 million players, hitting 1.3 million concurrent users, which doesn't hurt given that it's free or which isn't, I don't want to say difficult, but it doesn't hurt that the game is free to play. Uh, but the reason it the information is noteworthy is that it had only 10 million players 60 days ago. So with a sort of rapid weekly update system and no pay to win items it looks like fortnite is gaining a lot of steam a, they also recently if you recall i think a, a week or two ago i had mentioned that fortnite was or fortnite and epic games were in the midst of a lawsuit with two cheaters who had hacked the game and were were basically modding and one was an underage 14 year old but for some reason, Epic decided to settle with the other person they were suing, a guy named Charles. It was settled through a court injunction with the promise to destroy the cheating software and a potential $500,000 fine were that not to be the case. But uh, we'll see where that goes. The Fortnite PUBG competition is only going to heat up. I am curious if Fortnite ever tries to make a play for consoles, which I don't think would be a terrible idea because I think PUBG will establish itself pretty well on consoles moving forward, but we'll touch back on that one again to PUBG in a little bit. Far Cry 5 has been delayed. The coincidentally politically relevant game, which is about a ultra-Christian sect based in Montana, has been delayed and pushed back from February 27th to March 16th. They, in a statement, noted that they needed more development time and cited delay, the delay and success of Assassin's Creed Origins, which, I'll be honest, I, I, I'll often take a delay in 
the release of a game for more development time if it is going to be uh, worth it in the end run. I think Assassin's Creed Origins did that. And I think that for this reason, and in a future episode, we'll take a look at it as to why yearly release titles are just a bad idea. You just don't have the ability to do enough over the course of the year. So I'm glad Far Cry 5 is a little delayed and it's only like two, three weeks. So not terrible. Uncharted, the entire series, has sold over 40 million copies. Naughty Dog recently announced it at a PlayStation event that the series had sold cumulatively 41.7 million copies. That includes four main games and the expansion. Noteworthy because in May of 2016, the series had only sold 28 million copies, and that means that 13.7 million units, or one-fourth of the sales of the entire series, has occurred in the last 18 months, which bodes very well for the series, a potential film adaptation of the series, and lastly, for PS4 sales, which are actually almost at the same pace as PS2, which is frankly surprising. I, I, I did not expect that, but now the further into this generation of consoles we go, the further away I see PS4 and the Switch pulling from Microsoft, even though the One X just came out. But one day we'll jump into the failures of Microsoft's current generational system. Anyway, Bandai Namco is uh, just recently announced another game based off an anime. If you recall last week, I had mentioned that Bandai Namco had confirmed the My Hero Academy One Justice game coming out. This week, it actually came out with an announcement that really, 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 really interests me. Bandai announced there was going to be an open world One Piece game called One Piece World Seeker. If you're not familiar with the anime, it is one of the most popular series in Japan and just one of the most popular anime series of all time. It's incredible. I would highly suggest for you to watch it. It's based off a pirate. Main character is a pirate named Luffy who is after a treasure with other pirates. And I would say it's worth watching. It is worth watching. I wouldn't even say it is worth watching. However, if you're willing to pony up the time to get through the 700 plus episodes, that would usually be the curve required because there's a lot of goddamn episodes of this show. Anywho, now moving on to a little bit of esports news. The Google actually released a, a search or a, a new live score esports feature. So if you type in the name of a sports league on Google, the search engine is going to dis- display the results or the schedule for upcoming games. Uh, it uh, just launched this week with the ESL Pro League season six finales in Denmark and very similar to the way that traditional sports are 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 displayed if you type in the league or a game or a team uh, i am curious to see if that is going to be available for the wider swath of leagues from overwatch to league of legends or if it is only going to be exclusive to google owned youtube based content like the esl pro league so we'll see where that goes but it's just another step in the establishment of esports in the wider mainstream area Anyway, next up, on to another hot topic. Steam, or the Valve Corporation, rather, announced it would no longer accept Bitcoin as a form of payment. Uh, we are going to be doing a future episode on cryptocurrency and gaming, but uh, they halted support due to, obviously, if you've been reading the news or and are familiar with Bitcoin, 
the increased volatility in the value of the coins and additionally the increase in transaction fees, which have in the last two years gone from 20 cents to almost $20. A funny little hitch in there is that if you make a purchase over the course of the time it would take for the transaction to actually go through, if your Bitcoin change values, you had to then either send more Bitcoin to make up for the price differential, or you had to be refunded by Valve for overpaying for the game. So until there is a bit more stability in that currency, I don't see it being used too much. I see this being a trend of people stop accepting Bitcoins and Bitcoin sort of becomes like gold in terms of a commodity that is invested and valued, but not necessarily used as a form of everyday payment. Anyway, um, Warner Brothers is going mobile with a new Harry Potter game. Harry Potter Hogwarts Mystery is being developed by Jam City, a L.A.-based development studio. It's just being described as a mobile narrative RPG based in Hogwarts. Even though very little has been revealed, the core concept is that you create a character and then progress through Hogwarts, taking classes and going around the campus. Uh, it's a little similar to Persona 5 in that nature. And just a, a last note on that, it should be cool. However, it is different from the Niantic game that is going on, the Harry Potter Niantic game, which is coming from the studio that did Pokemon Go. So I am curious to see how both of these go. Uh, or, you know, it's about time Harry Potter started seeing some content on mobile. And so now I got like two, three more stories for you here. PUBG has arrived on the Xbox One X. Uh, the first night the North American servers went down, which doesn't really surprise me given that this is the most popular game in the world to a degree at the moment or most or the hottest name in games. Uh, there's a little bit of a sluggish frame rate going on there as well. But uh, over time, I think it, it'll adapt well. I think it's actually going to be more popular on console than it was on PC. Why? I just feel like the gameplay lends itself to an enjoyable experience on console. But anyway, in addition, just to wrap that story up, even though that was a little bit of a rocky arrival, Microsoft actually had a pretty ingenious marketing plan to go along with the PUBG release. It airdropped actual supply crates in Australia, three cities, Brisbane, Melbourne and Sydney on December 9th. I would love to see more interactive uh, marketing campaigns like that in games. So hopefully that's a step uh, sign of things to come. <laughs> Uh, next up, Apple introduces pre-orders to the App Store. It is going to start allowing pre-orders for upcoming titles. If the game is free to play, you, it will be automatically downloaded upon release. And if it is a premium game, they noted that it would be charged before download, but they didn't clarify whether that meant charge when you pre-order it or charge when it is released and downloaded. But on the developer side, the pre-orders cannot be announced any more than 90 days before the release. This is a long time coming, especially with the soon to be growing focus on mobile gaming. Uh, a thing I'm, I'm sure Apple has noted when they recently redesigned the game section anyway. We're just going to start seeing more marketing, you know, push towards mobile. Mobile is going to become a, a big bastion. And if the switch proves anything, it's that if you can bring some sort of quality portable gaming uh, or make po quality portable gaming available, consumers are going to be willing to buy it. And so then just moving into our last two stories, Patreon raises its fees. So it's made it or not raised. It's made a change to the way that it does processing fees. So Patreon used to take a percentage of subscriber pledges to cover transaction fees. Now that 2.9% fee, which is in, in essence, basically a credit card fee 
will be pushed onto the pledger. So the idea was to give creators more percentage of donations, but the creators are slightly worried because they're seeing a number of donators or seeing the number of donators they have decrease given the extra costs that the donators will have to take, which is fair. Uh, I think that if they had been a bit more transparent, it would have made sense. It's only 35 cents per dollar. So it's also not egregious, but simultaneously, if you're supporting 10 artists at $10 uh, or at 10 artists for a dollar per person per month, you're going to get probably another, you know, an extra 30, 40% cost for those donations over the course of a month, which can add up over time. So it's understandable. So hopefully Patreon uh, takes a look at that. Uh, established four years ago, it pay out literally 50,000 creators per month, which is impressive, but never have a revenue model, these guys. And last up, the Nintendo Switch has sold 10 million copies in nine months, which is more than Dreamcast, which RIP, one of the greatest systems of all time, Marvel vs. Capcom 2, one of the greatest games of all time, very upsetting to see how shitty those sequels were. Regardless, it's already on pace to best Wii U's lifetime sales of 13.56 million. It's on course to sell, I believe, 16 million over the course of the entire year. Uh, the original Wii, for just comparative points, sold about 101 million units. Uh, it also puts it at the same pace as PS4, which sold about 10 million units of, in its first year as well, which is very impressive. I, I just genuinely did not realize that the number of sales for uh, PlayStation 4 was so strong. Uh, if you recall, PlayStation 2 is, in my opinion, probably the most popular system of all time and ended up selling nearly 155 million consoles. Uh, and uh, I guess I guess that's about it. N- Nintendo had a miraculous year over on the Ringer. If you are a reader of pop culture stuff, Victor Luckerson, who's the guy who covers tech there, wrote a great article about the Nintendo Switch being the technology story of the year. And I would agree with that. And then last up, I just want to say fuck Bungie, uh, because following the XP throttling, they now released, uh, or upon the release of their new DLC, Curse of Osiris, they were quickly criticized from players once a lot of the play, a lot of those same players realized that if you don't buy the DLC, you are locked out of some high level content that was initially available to the vanilla version, uh, gamers, but they did release very quickly the update patch 1.1.1 to change it and to give the players access again to some of the premier raids. But what can you do? Anyway, that's about it in weekly news. I am going to take a shot longer at Destiny 2 next week. But coming up after uh, a message from the sponsor, we're going to jump into our in-depth segment for this week. And that is going to be video game rental services. So coming up right after this. People Like Games is brought to you by Gunyo. That's gun.io, a professional freelance agency for software developers, a place for both developers and the individuals or company looking to hire them. Gun.io custom matches their clients with top professional freelancers from their over 25,000 
invite-only member community. Gun.io has remixed the humanity of an agency with the scale of a talent marketplace, which allows them to deliver the best value per dollar of any business in the software development space. So if you're in the market for a developer or happen to be a software developer looking for some new gigs, be sure to check out Gunyo, the best in the business. So for this week's in-depth analysis, I'm going to be taking a look at available video game rental services. It was a topic that came to mind following last week's episode where I had focused on physical versus digital download game pricing and namely the effect of the shift to digital downloads on secondary markets and video game rentals. Because if you really think, you don't have to think too hard to realize that there is not a premier video game streaming option available and that a majority of the rental market is still dependent on physical discs. And that made me want to go out and sort of compile a list of all of the available options or pricing, what their catalogs were like. And I quickly found that it was far more pathetic what was available in terms of options than I had previously imagined. And if you just recall, even just a few years ago, I believe it was 08, 09 when Blockbuster was closing, there was a big focus on the fact that it was a movie rental place. And I do not believe that there was as much realization as to how much of a hub it was for younger gamers to rent games. And growing up, I I was always at Blockbuster, whether for a movie or a game and in Blockbuster's place and for digital or just for physical DVD movie rentals, we've seen the shift towards streaming, obviously with Netflix and the dozens and millions of other competitors have come out. But when it came to the gaming market, there did not seem to be a comparative company that made uh, or came in the place of the traditional video game rental systems that were out there. And so, you know, you know, once Blockbuster was closed and for a few years, it was, you know, if you really think about it at this moment, at this second, if I said to you, okay, let's go rent a video game, what would you say? There's two options, which are the ones that are on top of everyone's head, which are Gamefly and Redbox. And I'll get into those. There's about four available, I believe, five to six. If you liberalize the definition of what video game rental services are. And then there's two other ones, which they, you know, ones we'll get we'll we'll get to that. It's pretty pathetic, but. Game rentals used to be an amazing thing. They provided a risk-free way to try and play new games without buying them. They allowed uh, mid-tier publishers and smaller house developers to get their games into the hands of people and maybe turn over fans who would buy sequels or subsequent games or spinoffs or whatever the case may be. But that sort of died. And now I feel like the digital downloads, the direct digital downloads that Steam and PlayStation and Microsoft offer have sort of taken the place that the developers could have used for rentals. And so I guess by decreasing the price of the games and making them directly available, that is a means to get it. But it also doesn't work for some of the bigger titles, like say a new Batman game comes out. That's always my example. I would love to pay $60 for it, but if I don't have $60 to pay for it, I feel like being able to rent that game for a fraction of the cost would be an ideal situation. It would still get the company money from me who would otherwise not pay a penny into the game. And instead, 
get them sales. I mean, if, if, if it's about getting more hands on the games and to get more people to play them, then I think game rentals are an ideal situation. But if the point is to be as profitable as possible, then it makes sense why games have sort of decreased their rental availability. So putting together a quick list, this is actually like last week, far quicker than I had expected. I had sort of assumed this would be a, a 20, 30 minute in-depth topic, but instead, it could probably be condensed into almost 10 minutes. Um, I guess if we're going to start with EA Access, which isn't technically a video game rental service, but it is, I guess it is a streaming game rental service. The cost is either $5 for one month or $30 for 12 months. And it's a subscription based gaming service that allows you access to obviously EA titles, but having access to EA titles doesn't mean much because all those shits have microtransactions now, so technically it's available, but that doesn't make it very good. Gamefly, which is the obviously most popular one, uh, the one that people are most uh, familiar with, and that is a sort of predominant company in the sphere now, their pricing structure is either one game for $15, two games for $22, or three games for $28.95. I think the fourth game option, but I forget the price. Uh, the drawback for this service, however, is that one, their customer service is god awful. And two, the speed at which are, I guess there's three things. So two, the speed at which you receive games is subject to how far away from distribution centers you are. And given that a majority of the distribution factories for Gamefly are based in the West, if you are trying to rent games on the East Coast, you're going to face a delay. And three, there is usually a, a queue for new releases. So the waiting time is subject to randomness. You may get the opportunity to get a new game the week it comes out. And if you don't, you may have to wait weeks or a month or whatever the case may be. It's a indefinite amount of time for new titles. It would give you access to the larger titles, but we're talking about new titles here. Then there's Redbox, which is $3 a night to rent a game. That is not a terrible service. I do use Redbox, but it is wholly dependent upon if there happens to be a red box around you, which I want to say that if you're outside the suburbs or outside of a specific metropolitan area that you're likely not going to see a lot of red boxes, but it, it's not a terrible idea. It, 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 it's an emergency valve <laughs> and it works occasionally if you're like really that bored and want a game. Next up comes the two console-based versions. Nintendo obviously doesn't have a rental service. Nintendo doesn't do anything that everyone else does, which I sort of respect about it. Uh, the Xbox Game Pass, which is $9.99 a month, they give you a 14-day free trial. I have tried it. It's not terrible. It is surprisingly enjoyable, even if the library is a little sparse. There's like over 100 games, and if you combine that with the free gold giveaway games for Xbox Live every month, it's not terrible, not the greatest, but if you occasionally want a library to access that you don't own, it is a good place to find some random games, but I still hate the fact that you have to fucking download them. I just, for the life of me, do not understand what Xbox's fascination was with forcing the download of highly large files onto a system with the limited storage space, but... If I ever sit down with someone on the Xbox team, I shall ask them that question specifically. 
And then PlayStation Now, which is the, I guess, the PlayStation or the Sony version of that. It's actually slightly better. It's $9.99 a month or $999 for a year, which doesn't make too much sense. I think it includes access to a few other things. But uh, there's hundreds of PS3 and PS4 games, but they do tend to skewer towards the slightly older games in the series, I think. One of the qualms I've had is the ability to access even relatively new games is what video ga- some of these video game systems or rental systems lack. It would be pretty cool if Xbox made the entire back catalog, if it's Xbox One and Xbox games available through a streaming rental service like Game Pass. However, again, like I said last week, it is the result of our dependence on digital downloads. And so it makes sense that the limitation of options is directly due to the purchasing habits of the consumers who now complain about said reality that they created with their said monetary decisions. Anyway, there's two other ones I found, which one was called Game Access, which was sketchy as fuck with no pricing info available and which I don't know why someone would do that but I, the website looks like it was it, it was awful it was god awful so we're, we're not going to go with that one it's not even worth it it's just basically a pit or a nigerian prince trying to steal your money then there was rent games now which had three different prices on its website which also looked like it hadn't been touched since the 1990s so we're going to assume both of those were null and void there is another service called get gaming in australia which looked pretty good but it's $30 for one game, $40 for two games. And I guess I had a third price for a third uh, for three games, but that's based out in Australia. And I don't think that they ship outside of that land, which, you know, there's actually a surprising number of oceanic gaming, uh, oceanic gamers sort of compa- comparable to uh, NAEU and Asia now moving up as they get faster internet access. So always slept on Australia, a lot of travelers too, but anyway, the last two obviously would have been Netflix, which doesn't have gaming rentals, but for some reason should or could, but they don't. So what can you do about that? And then lastly, GameStop, womp, womp. they tried their Power Pass, which was going to be a $60 rental service, $60, six, oh, $60 six month rental service. But lo and behold, within the first week of its soft launch was required to close down because apparently GameStop had a really shitty inventory management system as well as pretty shitty registration system for the power pass. So they did not think to create a unique system or to combine those two systems before they launched the program. So that won't work. I really genuinely thought that turning some of these gaming stores into rental hubs and then having them profit, which they already do from hardware and sort of miscellaneous items instead of, you know, the, if you already know that gaming stores aren't making a very large commission, if only a few dollars are coming per new AAA title, then it would make sense for them to be a place that people that just gets a lot of foot traffic and then is able to convert that foot traffic into some money. However, it for some reason looks like the gaming industry is pretty bad at business, but what can you do there? Anyway, that that's that's literally the sum total of all of the rental options available. 
a pretty sad list. Uh, Gamefly is obviously your number one option. Redbox is number two. Game Pass and PlayStation Now, I guess, are going to be tied, if only because their price is the same. And there's no alternative. So if there is one thing to be said for the shift to digital downloads, it's that it's hurt the studios whose games are really fun, but are priced just slightly too high for someone to buy and who would really want to play. And so it's a little upsetting. I, I was I love video game rentals. I would be a consistent member of a video game rental system now if it was available in even a, a streaming version, which that's something we should also find out, which is why there are no digital streaming gaming services, much the way that EA Access does it. But with uh, an independent one, I guess that is specific to what the console marketplace allows in terms of apps, et cetera. But we'll see. Anyway, that was a little bit uh, unclimactic in terms of what's available out there. A little upsetting, but what can you do? Tis the 21st century and in it 2017. And we know there's no there's no happiness in this year, but we're, we're coming towards a good year. Uh, anywho, uh, following the uh, or following a message from our sponsor, we'll be getting to the interview portion where I sit down with the incomparable Jamie Broadnax as we talk about games, movies, television, diversity, gender, and politics. Coming up. People Like Games is brought to you by me, Solo, the host of the show, and who is arbitrarily talking on this advertisement because we don't have a second sponsor. So, um, Nintendo, if you hear us, hit us up. Can you hear me? Perfectly. Can you hear me? Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. I know this is our first time talking and I know you probably had a long day, but, you know, <laughs> thank you again for taking the time. You know, it's always a, a little difficult to get guests uh, in the early going. So um, no worries. So, you know, I'm just going to say thank you one last time. So, you know, um, if you're, you know, slightly familiar, the show is about um, video games, but it mm -hmm. also just is going to be touching on a few larger topics. So, you know, I came through uh, and, you know, put together about 10, 12 questions that I think might be interesting to you. Um, however, um, for the people who will be listening, um, this is Jamie Broadnax, and she is the founder of Black Girls Nerds. Um, a really wonderful online community uh, for women of color and for black women uh, and for really just all types of nerds to come together. So, Jamie, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, why do I guess to begin, would you mind running me through the origin stories of how you came to start Black Girl Nerds? Absolutely. It, it started back in February of 2012. And at that time, I noticed a lot of things in geek culture were becoming very popular. So at the time, like Big Bang Theory was the number one show on CBS and mm -hmm. the Captain America movies were making crazy money at the box office and just, you know, seeing pop culture in the geek space becoming very prominent. And I went on Google and I did a search 
And I just typed in black girl nerds and nothing came up. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. <laughs> so um, it, it was it was crazy to me that um, I couldn't find, you know, an afterthought for the term. So it was at that moment that I went ahead and created a blog site. I had already had a blogger account at the time mm-hmm. and, and used that, that same moniker, black girl nerds. And, um, it quickly evolved. It, I mean, literally within 48 hours of uh, launching the blog site, I had an author email me saying, Hey, I'd like to write content with you on the site. And wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it, it really evolved from there. And it started working in tandem. So then, you know, going from there five years ago, it's 2012, where you sit down and you Google this in between those five years to where you are now, where you're a brand that reaches hundreds of thousands of people. You have a podcast, you have a YouTube channel, you, you know, uh, are uh, hosting panels, you're, you know, reviewing shows, movies, et cetera. What's mm-hmm. been some of the major challenges that you faced in going from that from that Google search to what you're doing now and to how large it's grown, the scaling Um, or, you know, some of the inherent difficulties. Yeah. I think at the beginning, the difficulty was maintaining consistency and coming up with new things to write about and to Mm -hmm. talk about. Um, And at that time it was just me and like a couple of other writers. Um, And even then the other writers would just, contribute a piece here and there and that would be it and I wanted it to be consistent like a blog where you go there every day and there's content so that was yeah that was challenging at first but as it began to grow and a large part it has to do with the social media account the twitter account Mm -hmm. um people stumbled onto it and was like hey I would love to be a part of this and um, as more writers came onto the team, it became easier to have content up on the site on a daily basis. So now with respect to content, it's gotten a lot easier. Um, but then there's other hurdles that come in the way mm-hmm. <laughs> when you build a brand and when you build an online community that requires a large demand. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, just to put it bluntly, it's more monetary now. Yeah, absolutely. And, are, are you, and, are, so is this like your full-time job or are you still, you know, do you work regularly or is this the, you know, your full focus? This is not my full-time job. Really? I have a full, yeah. No way. No way. <laughs> way, way. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's the response I get from people whenever yes. I tell them that I don't, it's so funny too, because it's like I'll have people email me and be like, "Hey, can Black Girl Nerds be a sponsor for our event?" <laughs> I'm like, um, "I need money. I can't yeah, sponsor right? anybody else." But I'm, I'm glad that the site presents itself as like this fully functioning, you know, independent company because absolutely that, it does. that means we we come off very professional and mm-hmm. and that we're actually running this this online community the same way that sites that are owned by media brands are running there so that's you know flattering but yeah i have a day job and uh i mean i I have to say hearing that makes what you do with black girl nerds probably a thousand times more impressive because i know what it's like 
you know, to, to work a day job and then to have to create content after the fact, but to not only do it on this small scale, but to do it on this sort of massive scale that you do, it's, it's very impressive. It's very impressive. And so thank for you. the sponsors who are listening, hit her up. Um, yes, please. Absolutely. Especially after the whole Patreon situation. Yeah. yeah that that's mm. kind of that's been a, a large part of where our revenue has come in, at least consistent revenue has been through Patreon. And ever since those fees went up, I mean, like in the last week, we've dropped five patrons. Wow. Um, I was thinking yeah. about that because I, I was actually I was talking to my brother about it, which is um, to a degree, they're justifying it as covering credit card costs. But at the same time it's going to hurt the actual content creators like yourself, as you right. said, which, so, so you already, so then, you know, I guess, you know, I, that's a little bit of a problem with uh, the, the Patreon model or the, you know, Patreon model, um, especially because they're very subject to potentially changing uh, business models, which. You know. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating because I think, I, I get what their intention is, but mm-hmm. a lot of us creators would rather eat the fees mm-hmm. on our end than to have that to the patrons. Cause a lot of these people work very hard for their money and they give because they want to support. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And those $1, you know, donations every month, it adds up and, and they matter. So to tack on a 38 cent fee mm-hmm. is going to really um, deter a lot of those. And a lot of those people that donate a dollar, it's not because they're just being, you know, <laughs> cheap about it, you yeah. know, for so lack of a better word, but they, they, they donate a dollar because they're donating dollars to several other creators. Mm-hmm. So they may be donating a dollar to like 40 or 50 other creators. So, you know, I, I don't think the Patreon people really thought that out. Absolutely, because Probably. I can't help but feel that, you know, a large majority of those who are going to be affected are, are going to be, you know, people and women of color who sort of depend on uh, those sort of uh, subscriptions on a month to month basis to create content. And as a minority, I, I always am a firm believer of, you know, putting my money where my mouth is. If you want to see right. diversity, you got to pay for it. It's You're not going to be like, oh, I really want to see the show, but I'm not going to go pay for that ticket. No, you got to support the content. And, so, you know, it's really going to uh, it's not solidify, but it's really going to create like a set. It's going to it's going to create a hierarchical hierarchical structure for mm-hmm. it. where You're going to have like five majors and then you're just going to have decreasing amounts. Uh, bottom line, basically put, I agree with you. Patreon didn't think that through. So uh, Patreon, we do not want you as a sponsor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so because we are a video game show, however, and we are going to get into larger pop culture questions. But uh, since we are a video game show, I'm going to get this out of the way. Uh, Do you have a couple of video games that come to mind that have been uh, in some way influential or important to you over the course of your life? Mm, That's a great question. It doesn't even have to be ones you played. Hey, games that have been important to me. Um, you know, I think one of the most sort of empowering moments in a video game that still just kind of shakes me to my core is Metroid, mm. um, which coincidentally enough, uh, the singer and artist on our 
podcast is rapper Samus. And he's aptly named after the character of Samus in the video game Metroid. So I bring that up to say that, you know, I played this game for years and I loved it. And to see that moment at the end when Samus takes off her helmet and it's a chick and you're thinking the whole time this is a guy that's, that's, you know, the protagonist, like I... It just, I think that was the first moment that I was like, oh my gosh, girls can be a main character, you know, kicking butt and fighting in a game and, and be the hero. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, that still, still sticks with me to this day. I, I don't game as much as I did back. Obviously I'm dating myself by bringing up Metroid. <laughs> well, I'm going to um, say you're quite busy these days if, <laughs> if it's not self-evident for the listeners. Yeah, but you know, I just, I just still think about that. So that, I, if it, you know, to, I hope that kind of answered your well, question. Well, but, it does because yeah, it, it, it allows me to pivot to the topic that you know, uh, which is one of your main focuses as well as which is going to be representation, which is you know, as you were mm-hmm. saying, being younger, playing the game, and then to see a woman, you know, under the mask, that changes you. You know, that's why it sort of stayed with you at this point. And so, you know, given that you are more of a a comic book fan, you know, Mm -hmm. using that same analogy towards video games, uh, do you think there is uh, a large gender bias in gaming um, that you see sort of... uh, uh, what, 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 what were the word I would be looking for here, which deters women from wanting to join in, whether it be the content, whether it's how it's, you know, spoken about or how the community engages or the ways in which 90 percent of the time female game characters are hypersexualized, mm-hmm. not being a woman, not being a woman of color myself. Um, you know, mm-hmm. where where does that community stand when it comes to gaming? You know, how, how do they feel? How do you feel you know, about this space? Yeah, I mean, definitely there's major gender bias in gaming. I mean, Gamergate is indicative of that through and through. Mm -hmm. Uh, Seeing gaming journalists, women gaming journalists being harassed, threatened, doxxed. I mean, I was on a panel with Amita Sarkeesian, um, my very first panel at Geek Girl Con several years ago, and uh, there was a bomb threat at that panel. Yes, I would imagine. I mean, she has to walk around with security wherever she goes, which is ridiculous. Like, she's just, yeah, she's just (laughs) critiquing video games. Like, it's not that serious. Seriously. But um, I I think that's the problem. First of all, you know, it is systemic. Like, there's not enough gaming journalists that are women, certainly not that many women of color gaming journalists. Um, I even feel like I'm Black Girl Nerds it's a little bit sparse on the gaming side of kind of the content that we produce. Cause we just don't have enough writers that are, are writing about gaming. So there's only think, so much content to write about within that realm. In within that. Exactly. So I think there's opportunities with hiring and having more representation of um, women of color in the journalism side of things, on the development side of things, and seeing uh, characters and avatars look like 
women of color and not like, <laughs> you know, look like a black woman and not look like a white woman with a black makeup on, if absolutely. that makes sense. Absolutely. It absolutely <laughs> does. It absolutely does. In the worst way possible, it makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. So stuff like that is super important. And then just having safe spaces for black women and women of color to have a community that they feel supported by. That's why I'm, I'm such a huge cheerleader for black girl gamers and sugar gamers. And I've even had um, Keisha Howard, who leads um, sugar gamers on my podcast, talking about that, because I think it's really important that there is a community where even if a woman has never gamed in her life or, you know, is not that familiar with the subculture, she can join a group and feel supported and then feel empowered to you know, start gaming or start developing her own game. I, I very much agree, which is I, I don't understand the the lack of a welcoming attitude amongst gamers to be, you know, even right. a lot of uh, even a lot of the comic book, uh, you know, quote unquote geeks that I'm sure you've dealt with, uh, mm -hmm. you know, early in your career, which is they're like, oh, this is my thing and I love it. And it's like, if you really love it, wouldn't you want someone new to come in and, you know, to love it as well and have reason to love what you love as well. I don't understand this uh, need for ownership and a specific type of, you know, dis uninclusive ownership uh, that occurs at the heart of both of these industries. Exactly. There's, there's this weird thing where, you know, I guess just call it what it is like white guys feel infringed upon because there are women and people of color that are, you know, evolving in these spaces, they feel like, well, you know, this is all mine and you can't be a part of this. Or they feel like something is being taken away from them mm. and they won't be represented as much by having um, other groups and other folks around. But I look at it like this, like it's I think there's room enough for everybody. You know, not everything has to be predominantly of one particular culture, of one gender you know, of one sexuality, like there's room for all of us to be able to create our own spaces and do some really good things. Absolutely. The sooner the sooner society realizes not everything's a zero sum game, especially in the arts, the better. Yes, indeed. But, but now, you know, moving on. So then what do you do you think some of the factors that led to the diversifying of comics? You know, there's the trailer that just came out for Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, which is going to be the mm -hmm. Sony animated uh, Spider-Man movie, but with Miles Morales. You've seen uh, Captain America switch over to uh, Sam Wilson, who used to be the Falcon, who's also a black man. Uh, and then you have Miss Marvel, who is a Pakistan girl, which I think you and I need to partner on a campaign to get them to make a Miss Marvel movie. Yes. <laughs> like, I I'm behind this. I we can make this happen. Uh, I've seen I've seen your work with hashtags. So uh, we're, we're going to make this happen. You tell me what to say. and I'm going to spam it. Um, I'm there. I'm ready. <laughs> uh, and so, do, do you think, you know, what, whatever the lessons of those are, I don't know if they're economic, because I personally am not as deep into comics, those factors have been noticeable to me as a consumer of the content over the last four to five years. Do you think that will be a uh, transfer over to gaming or do you think that they're similar, but not analogous industries? 
No, I think they're very similar. I mean, what's happened in the gaming community and what's happening in the gaming community is definitely happening in comics. Mm -hmm. You know, there's still lack of representation of women of color. You know, Marvel, I can count on one hand with a few fingers how many black women have been hired as writers uh, there. So Marvel doesn't have a great track record on that. Not at all. Um, so it's it's definitely they they definitely share a parallel universe. Um, but, you know, I'm I, I'm hopeful because we do see Kamala Khan. Right. Mm. We are getting a Black Panther movie coming out shortly. And then, you know, we've got Captain Marvel coming out. So, you know, we're finally seeing some superheroes that aren't white guys named Chris. Yes, I, I was going <laughs> to say it, it's a it was a big year for Chris's in 2017. It so, really was. It really like, was. And I'm not opposed to the Chris's. I, I love the Chris's. The, I love the Chris's, but can I get a non-Chris? That's not what yeah. I asked for. Seriously. That, like, exactly. You and know, I what? think 2018 will hopefully give us definitely more of that, both on like the cinematic side and, and then on the TV side, because you've got Luke Cage and Jessica Jones and, you know, so that's also some really cool stuff to look forward Absolutely. to. So I'm actually going to, which was a question I wanted to save at the end, but because we're sort of in the heart of it, it's going to be sort of a two part question. But this for the first um, now seeing that the argument uh, that was usually held by the entertainment industry, which was that diversity wasn't profitable, has sort of been, you know, even, you know, evidence has proven that to be a false assertion. Right. You're still not seeing a mass scale change. Uh, right. Why do you think that mainstream culture has had trouble catching up? And do you believe that that top down model is, uh, you know, plausible for creating the sort of uh, change and reflecting the diversity that uh, viewers are looking for. Mm. Which I mean, I'm, I'm now I'm just going to jump back and I'm going to actually expand even further onto that. So because this is going to be a, a similar question in regards to a tweet that you did today, uh, okay. which was in reference to Emily Best. Um, she was ah, she yeah. tweeted uh, for the listeners. Let me just uh, find this real quickly. Um, the need for uh, social media or was this the need for the Golden Globe nominations today remind us that we need diversification in the press and critical circles as much as we do in front and behind the camera. So mm-hmm. jumping on that, that um, reminded me of something uh, from an episode of Revisionist History with Malcolm Gladwell. Do you listen by chance? I know of Malcolm Gladwell's work. I read Blink, which was really good, um, but I've not listened to that podcast. So, so th- this is going to make sense. So, so bear with me. I know it's a little of a, a prolonged question, but uh-huh. um, he posed one of the better questions I've ever heard. And it was in regards to the desegregation of schools in the South during the 60s. He said the biggest mistake that occurred was that they focused on desegregating the classrooms and the children, the students. But they never focused on making sure that the teaching body and the teaching faculties were diver- diversified first. So do you think that diversity we we're just talking about will come from the top down or just as in this case, it would be a smarter idea for that diversification to begin with the writers and critics and that bottom up process is more likely to see the results that we're looking for rather than every year complaining that, you know, 
there's been an egregious overlooking of a talented woman of color or, you know, per, or, or man of color or whatever by whatever gender of color. Wow. These are such deep thought provoking questions. I love it. Thank you. Um, thanks. Sorry, sorry for the long uh, layout of that, but I, I had no. it written on a side note. I was like, I know I need to ask this question. <laughs> Great context um, to work with here. So I definitely feel like it's a bottom up thing. I mean, we've seen the top down approach. It really hasn't worked quite well. I mean, Cheryl Boone Isaacs is the president of the Academy and Oscars are still white. So I think, you know, Oscars are still so white. So I think that, you know, by giving people that are members of the press and film critics and publicists and people that are working for studios, um, giving those kinds of jobs to people of color, um, women, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, trans, you know, folks, I think that that's going to give more opportunities to uh, be able to review films and campaign for films that are a lot more diverse. I mean, I don't remember the name of the film, but it's all, you know, everybody on film Twitter is going crazy about it. But the Christopher Plummer film that got nominated. Oh, oh uh, the, the one that he, he replaced uh, Kevin Spacey for. Right. All the money in the world. All the money in the world. Right. So that got nominated and nobody has seen it except the Hollywood Foreign Press. Mm -hmm. And we don't even know for certain if they've seen it, because the way it works is the studios send these, you know, folks, screeners, these critics, screeners and stuff. And then they can either watch it or they don't. I mean, they don't get monitored on watching the screeners. Mm -hmm. So they can vote for whatever they want. And if they see Christopher Plummer's name and they're like, oh, yeah, I know this guy. I'm going to go ahead and check off his name as opposed to checking off an actor that they're not that you know familiar with. So a lot of people were upset because there was no buzz around the film. The film hasn't been released. They still have to Um, cut out Kevin Spacey from three quarters of the movie. They had to cut out Kevin Spacey. And meanwhile, films that have gotten huge buzz over the past year like get out get snubbed we are not even going to talk about uh, (laughs) how egregious that was between jordan peele kumal nanjiani and greta gerwig for lady bird yes yes are you like why am i tuning into your show if you do not understand that the three most important of the movies even the florida project the four most important movies of the year are not properly you know given respect on top of the fact, right. and we're not even going to get into Get Out being called a comedy or a musical. It's Right. So that that nomination for Ridley Scott, you know, for that film should have been given to Jordan Peele for Get Out. I mean, Ridley Scott, yes, he's, you know, a very good director and we know him very well from his work in Aliens. But I don't think that he should have gotten that director nomination. I think it should have definitely gone to Jordan Peele. I mean, he he shifted pop culture yeah because of get out i mean the fact that people say the sunken place just gonna say it pejorative Mm -hmm. yeah that that's a big deal and i think that those are things that um people should take into account when they're nominating these films when they're voting for these films but you know the That's issue why we need is more of us represented in those in those film critic circles. Absolutely. And I really dislike how a lot of the time some of these legacy nominations of 
mm. old. Like we get it. Spielberg is good. Like right, dog, right. he's making the post. So like, do you really need to give him another like you know vanity nomination? Like, give it to that young startup. Give it. You know, they hold these people in esteem until you know for so long that they don't get the ability to pass the baton and you know that's a reason there's a lot of dissonance between who the award shows are looking at and who you know we're looking at because in every measure get out either financially either you know critically in any situation you would assume that that should just be accepted as objectively the case but apparently when objective truths are shown some people like to get relative facts but exactly exactly and then just to bring up another snub tiffany haddish for yes girl's trip like yes that's absolutely. another film that got so well received i mean it made over a hundred million dollars at the box office disproving the fact that films with women with women of color don't do well well Mm -hmm. that pretty much broke all of those uh you know notions so yeah it's 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 super frustrating to see uh that it's just like business as usual Mm -hmm. and and they're they're not willing to be innovative and creative enough to really bring some folks on that really deserve those nominations d reese for mudbound mudbound is absolutely haven't gotten a chance to watch it but i've heard nothing but good things yeah and so. uh, on that note, fuck SNL for giving Tiffany Haddish's night a co-sign by Taylor Swift. Who, Thank you. Fuck Thank SNL. you. Hashtag, hashtag. <laughs> Kanye called you guys out for a reason. And he called Taylor out for a reason. We're sticking with that. <laughs> yeah, but, I was just like, really? really? I, like, I, I thought, I'm celebrating like, this. Tiffany Haddish, yes. Taylor Swift is going to be a musical guest. Fuck. They had they, and they they knew they released that Tiffany Haddish information before they released that Taylor Swift was going to be on with her because they knew they knew people would not be happy. But fuck yeah. them, their show's unfunny anyway. So. <laughs> the only person who's good on that is Kel, or was it Keenan? Keenan. Oh, Keenan Thompson. Thompson. So yeah, you get the thumbs up, Keenan. Fuck the rest of your cast. But <laughs> anyway, um, now on to a little bit just general pop culture. Um, what are some actresses and directors that inspire you? And then I got one or two questions and then I'll let you off. Cause I know you had, have had a busy day, got a lot of work to do and I don't want to tie you up too much. I've already, you know, appreciate your kindness for showing up. Oh, thank you. Um, well, Ava DuVernay, obviously. I mean, mm. she's, I, I had the pleasure of meeting her before she became like super famous and she's, she's so sweet and humble. And, um, I really just love everything that she's doing. I mean, she's creating a movement in the industry as well by the work that she did on Queen Sugar is mm-hmm. doing on Queen Sugar, I should say, Absolutely. by hiring all women directors and giving women opportunities, um, that just haven't been given before. I mean, I've, I've interviewed a couple of the women that uh, she hired um, on my podcast, Victoria Mahoney, Tina Mabry, and they are just these stellar women who have a plethora of experience, but have never really been given a shot, like on the mainstream side to direct stuff. So um, Ava's done that, and I'm just amazed by her work. Absolutely. And also um, Shonda Rhimes. Of Shonda course. Rhimes, of course. Of course. Friend of Black Girl Nerds. And, um, <laughs> friend and, of the pod. Yep, fr- yeah, friend of the pod, right? And, uh, and she's just, 
everything that she does is golden and magic and she rules thursday nights like she owns thursday and which is uh, I'm so grateful so grateful yeah yeah like um just go ahead and forget about the rest of the days of the week thursday is all hers like, um literally the only person who can call be called that which is it's you're, you're you have a full night Right. And then and the fact that she's got the sustainability. I mean, mm. Grey's Anatomy has been around for how long now? Like, oh, I don't know. Forever. I don't know. I don't know how, <laughs> but I got to talk to Sean about that. But, you know, he just like taking like a, a pinball machine of ideas and just rolling them together, being like, pops out. Right. Right. And, and then she's going to be doing some stuff for Netflix soon. So, I mean, she's already got an empire, but she's building it bigger and bigger year by year and i'm just in awe of her greatness so i love how they always you know always look back for the next person and and i think that's something i always see particularly with successful minorities in the entertainment industry uh black brown yellow whatever color you may have um who are always you know understanding that you know one step in the door means the next person means the next person and that's a it's a it's a wonderful thing to to always see it gives you sort of hope and a little bit of optimism uh, about the industry exactly but yeah um, and then you know i guess to uh you know close things out with a, a final question um i heard or i have read that you are the founder of a new comic book convention coming up called Universal Fan Con, which is going to be taking place April 27th to 29th in Baltimore, Maryland, um, Mm -hmm. with the aim of emphasizing diversity and accessibility. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about it. How would you come up with the idea? You know, what is the Universal Fan Con for the listeners? Yeah, so it's it's bigger than a a comic book convention. We're going to have everything from gaming to cosplay larping a lot of vip and celebrities are going to come so it's 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 a fan con um Mm. but basically what started it was you know for when i started black world nerds and the online community started to swell a lot of folks would tweet to me or email me and say have you ever thought about doing like a black girl nerds con so the idea is always the seeds always always been kind of planted there but it wasn't until I connected with the team over at the Black Geeks mm-hmm. um, that we actually were able to kind of, you know, nurture this and, and make this grow into something tangible and real. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we kind of put our heads together and figured that this is something I think we can definitely do between our social media brands. We've already got a following. We've already got people that are interested mm-hmm. why not just go ahead and do this and um little by little people that were in our circles you know heard about it and were interested and was like hey i want to volunteer to help do this that and the other and our team of initially like four or five people on the call became like 20 people and now i think it's even up to like 60 people oh wow um cool. so it's yeah it's just uh, there's a lot of folks that are um, doing certain things. And um, I'm really excited to see how this is all going to turn out because it's, it's pretty big for a first year con, you know, Mm -hmm. you see these first year cons and it's like, Oh, it's, you know, um, Joe Piscopo. (laughs) Yeah. I've been a few janky first year (laughs) cons myself. You know, like like these 
third tier comic book artist or whatever that mm-hmm. you just don't really know of. But here we've got the cast of American Gods. We've got Orlando Jones, Phil Lamar, um, Steve Blum, who's like the god of voice animation. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got a lot of great and Samus, who I mentioned before. He's going to be a guest. Mm-hmm. So um, we're just really excited that there's going to be so many great people involved, um, both on the celebrity side. And then we also have our affiliates. So people that are a part of the Blurred community um, will be sort of our uh, kind of our like our social media mm-hmm, sponsors absolutely. for the event. So we've got the Fan Bros and Nerds of Color and Nerds of Prey. And also we've got affiliate groups that represent people with disabilities like by Thompson and Alice Wong of Disability Visibility Network. So we, we really want to be as inclusive as possible. And we're working really hard to continue to do that because mm-hmm. I feel like there's still opportunities. Like I really want to get some more trans representation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're, we're just excited about what's going to be happening. I didn't get a chance to go myself, but just this past weekend, uh, the team went to the convention center and did a walkthrough, and I was told that people were in tears. That's amazing. Know? That's incredible to hear. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're really excited about what's going to come. Yeah. And that's UniversalFan.com. Uh, UniversalFanCon.com. Excuse me. Right. You can buy tickets there. If you're pressed, you can apply for passes there. And what was the Twitter? Universal FanCon at Universal FanCon is the Twitter handle. Simple enough. Universal yep. FanCon. Don't forget it. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I hope you enjoyed your conversation. And, um, you know, I look forward to supporting your work in the future and uh, becoming the unofficial uh, gaming partner of, uh, you know, Universal FanCon. I think uh, that would be amazing because we, we need some more gaming representation. So. You, can count us, you can count on us. We're in. All right. Let's awesome. do it. Awesome. awesome. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you again for taking the time. And uh, I will be sure to send you the episode when it's finished. All right. Awesome. Excellent. All right. Thank Have a good you. night, Jamie. Okay. Thank you. This was great. I really appreciate it. And yeah, definitely let me know when it's done and I'll tweet it out and share it on all my socials. Absolutely. Absolutely. Remember at black girl nerds, go find them. Yes. <laughs> all right. Take care. Okay. Bye.